Welcome, uh, my name is John. I have the joy and privilege of being one of the pastors here, and if I haven't had the chance to meet you, I uh, would love to, to say hi to you after the gathering and, and hear a little bit of, of your story and why you're here. Uh, we're in a series in the Gospel of Luke, which we will uh, uh, continue on next week as we look at uh, Easter weekend, so we invite you to be here for that, both on Friday, come with friends, family, other people in the community. Like, like uh, Mayan said, it will just be self-guided in here, so you can just walk through uh, take some time to look at the, the various artwork and reflect on uh, the death of Christ. And then on, on Sunday, we'll gather and we'll celebrate uh, Christ's resurrection together. But today, we're in a, in a passage uh, just previous to uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. So I'm going to read it for us. It's from Luke 18. So a ruler asked Jesus, he came to him and he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. I've kept all these from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing, sell all you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, how hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it asked, then who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter said, look, we have left what we had and followed you. So he said to them, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house, wife, or brothers, or sisters, parents, or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time and eternal life in the age to come. This is God's word. Well, this morning we're talking about money, everyone's favorite topic to talk about anywhere, probably most of all in church. I told someone that this is the passage I was planning on preaching on, and they not jokingly said, I might be sick on Sunday. Uh, And so uh, I understand it's a weird topic, so I want to say a few things before we kind of get into the passage. First of all, here's what we're not talking about this morning. I am not up here asking you for money. So money is part of uh, reality. It's the reality of reality. It's part of church, and it's part of our rule of life, like Mayan talked about. And so that is something that we do talk about, that, that one of the rhythms that we have as people becoming more like Jesus is to give of our money. And the New Testament talks about that in saying that we decide how much we should give, we give generously, and we give with grateful hearts. Uh, but that's not what we're doing this morning. And this is not at all like a, a shame tactic or saying that uh, this church is not generous. In fact, we've had the best financial month that we've ever had in December. And I only know a few of these stories, but I could tell you stories of people in this community who are unbelievably generous. Uh, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to do that from here. But you know who you are, and there are those people in, in this community who are very, very generous. So that's not what we're talking about this morning. So why, why, why would we talk about money? Let me give you four reasons. The first is that Jesus talks about it a lot, a lot. If, this story, the rich young ruler, is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, scholars think that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they call them the synoptic gospels, that they had one source that they took their information from. It's called Q. And this source uh, it has this story in it, probably. And they all choose to include it in their gospels, which just means that they're saying, it's their way of saying, this story is important. It's key to understanding Jesus and his ministry and what he does. And if you read through the Gospel of Luke, very specifically, Jesus talks about money a lot. 
a lot. It's all over the place. And so uh, we want to talk about it too. The second reason is this, that Jesus cares about our whole lives. He cares about us holistically, all of us. So he cares about your emotional life. He cares about your physical life. He cares about your sexual life. And he also cares about our financial lives. It's part of who we are. Because he cares about all of us, he cares about this part of our life too. And it's something that he wants to talk about. The third reason is uh, because of what we're, the way that we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. So if you've been with us, we're talking about the Jubilee blessing that uh, Jesus gives. That's the way his, his ministry is announced in the Gospel of Luke. And there's three parts to this Jubilee blessing. That's sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed, and good news for the poor. Good news for the poor. And Gustavo Gutierrez, who's kind of known as the father of liberation theology, a very famous pastor from South America, he says this, the gospel then, if it's good news for the poor, is us learning how to say to the poor, to the least of society, that God loves you, that there's good news for you. So there's an economic reality here that we need to talk about if we're going to say good news to the poor. And then finally, even if uh, you, know, you, you don't really care about this, any of those reasons, I just want you to notice what's on offer from Jesus in this passage. If you, if you paid attention while, or saw while I was reading, Jesus offers eternal life. He, he says, come and follow me. He says how to be saved, and he says this is how you enter the kingdom. That's all in this passage, and to me, that's like all the things. That's basically like all the things on offer from Jesus in this one passage. And you could see that reflected. Those four things are a reflection of Jubilee. It's the same thing. They're both an invitation. And it's very important to notice that this man in this story doesn't get that. He refuses it. He walks away from it. And so something about his wealth and his attitude and the way that his wealth shapes and forms him has caused him to reject all those things, to reject Jubilee, to reject Jesus' offer. So it's really important for us to see and focus on that. So here's uh, where we're going to go today. We're going to look at four things. First, we're going to talk about um, economics and kind of the Jubilee story in the story of Israel, so the story of the Bible. Then we're going to look very specifically at this passage briefly. We're going to talk about this man's story. Then we're going to talk about how that might apply to us. And then we're going to look at the story of the disciples at the very end, okay? So those four things, that's where we're going this morning. So let's start by looking at God's economic vision for ancient Israel. Um, now, please hear, when I talk about this, this is an ancient vision. This is the way that God acted at this point in time. This is not God's economic plan for Canada, okay, in the 21st century. That's not what this is. It's not a one-to-one. There's things we can learn. There's things we can apply in our lives and the church, but that's not what I'm trying to say here, okay? This isn't an election uh, speech. I'm not asking for money, and I'm not asking to get elected, okay? So, Here's the story of, of Israel. So if you know, we'll pick it up in, in, in Exodus. So they're a small, Israel is a small and insignificant and weak nation. And, and we find, they find themselves enslaved in a place called Egypt. And so they cry out to God. They cry out to God and he, through, through Moses, frees them. So he brings them out of slavery through the Red Sea. Then they wander around for 40 years in the wilderness. And then they get into this place called the Promised Land. And so they carry this story with them. That's supposed to be their identity of who they are. And so here's some of the things that are their identity. That I used to be a slave, but now I'm free. That that's my identity. I used to be someone who was enslaved, but now I'm free because of the grace of God. I'm not valued because I'm part of a group of people. We're not valued because we're super strong, because we're super smart, because we have the best technology. We're valued because God chooses to make his presence with us. We are his people. That's why we're valuable. 
And this whole story reminds us that God will provide for us. He has provided for us all the way along, and so he will. And so my, my vision is to trust him. That's who I am as a person, to trust that God will continue to provide. And that everything I have, including this new land that I'm walking into, but everything that God has given me, all the blessings in my life, they're a gift from God. And they're a gift from God not to hold on to, that they're mine, but actually rather to steward. That's one of the words the Bible uses. That I hold it. It's, it's actually God's. It's given to me as a gift from him, and I hold it. And I hold it not for myself, but for a bigger vision of life, for, for his kingdom purposes. So this is supposed to be their mentality coming in. And so they move into this new land, and everything starts fresh. So I want you to imagine it's like this. It's like this line. Everybody is kind of like, equal is not the right word, but maybe the best word I can think of. So they all, they divvy up the land amongst all the different groups of people who are there. If you've ever read through the Hebrew scriptures, through the Old Testament, this is like one of the most boring parts where they divvy up the land. It's like, you know, Abinadab begat Ahab, and they moved on to 20 hectares by the dung gate. And you're just like, wow. And it's just pages of this, okay? Super boring, but super important to them. Because this is their, their land, their place in the promised land, and, and everybody gets some. So they have, everybody gets land, everybody, nobody's in debt, nobody is enslaved. But what happens over time is that some people end up with less. They move, they move downwards, downward mobility. And, and there's lots of reasons why, but let me just highlight three. They may have made some really bad choices, so they acted in unwise ways. So I said this at the beginning, uh, maybe you know their dad was like, you know what? I'm putting it all on the Canucks this year. They're going to win the cup. And you're just like, they never win the cup. Dad, stop putting... And then it's like unwise behavior. You lose all your land, right? Okay, or it's ungodly character, bad character. Maybe they're just lazy. Maybe they don't farm their land, for example. Or maybe they're just unlucky. They just experience the curse. The the plants that they... uh, The crop that they put in just got a blight. And they were just unlucky. And because of that, they may have to sell some of their land. Or they might have to go into debt. Or they might have to become uh, enslaved. And, and slavery at that time is not the same. When we think of slavery, we think of what terribly happened in you know, North America and the slave trade. That's not what we're talking about here. What they're talking about is I sell me and my family as servants to another family for a period of time to relieve my debt. But that's what happens. So people move down. They have less. Okay? But at the same time, other people will have more. And, and there's, again, lots of reasons, but let me just give you three. Maybe they made wise choices. Okay? Maybe they planted beans in a, in a place that was really good to plant beans. So it's just wise. Or maybe they had good character. They worked really hard in their field. Or maybe, again, they just had good luck. Right? Their neighbor got a blight on their crops. They did not. And so they gain over time, gain more land, gain more money, gain more servants. Now, here's what the Bible says about this kind of situation, that some people will have more and some people will have less. The first thing is this. This is just part of life. It's a reality for everyone, everywhere in the world. Both Jesus and the Hebrew scriptures are pretty clear, actually, that you will always have the poor among you. But there's a couple dynamics that are really important for us to understand. The first is this. The presence of the poor amongst God's people is an opportunity for God's people to show God's love to obey God, to love God and love neighbor, as we talked about that last week and, and we continue, we'll continue to talk about this week. It's, it's for the people who have more to give to those who have less, to show God's heart in that way. That's what God does for his people. And so the, the poor amongst us are an opportunity for us to give 
uh, out of our abundance. The second thing is that God designs the nation of Israel very specifically to help the poor. Let me just give you two examples. One is a, a gleaning rule. So imagine, again, you have a tract of land that's like this big, and you plant crops in it. So the gleaning rules would say you can't, uh, you can't harvest your crop all the way to the edge. So if you own that area, all you can harvest is about this big. And you have to leave the rest of that area for people who are poor or people who are foreigners who are just wandering through your land. It's a way of providing for the poor in, in the midst the second is the Jubilee, uh, which we've been talking about in this story. So if you haven't been with, or in this series, if you haven't been with us, every 49 years, Israel was supposed to uh, celebrate this year of Jubilee, and four things would happen. Everybody would rest, but also all the land would be restored. The people would get the land back that belonged to their family. It would be redivvied up once again. All the slaves would be released, and all the debts would be forgiven. That was a practice. Or as Jesus says, good news for the poor. That's what it is. So there's a few goals of these laws and systems that provide for the poor. The first is dignity. It gives people dignity, the dignity of being human. So imagine if you've lost everything, you can still go to your neighbor's uh, um, crops and get some. You work, you have to work, you have to harvest it yourself, but you're able to get fruit from from the labor of your hands. And I think that gives dignity to people. The second thing is that it gives them hope. If, imagine if you've lost everything and you still have 30 more years to go, you know, though, at the end of 30 years, if that jubilee is happening, that you'll get your land back, that things will be restored to you. And so there's hope. And then thirdly, and this is really important for where we're going in this, ser- in this uh, sermon, the laws exist to ensure that the poor don't become ultra-poor or super-poor. The Bible would say, again, that there are going to be people with less, but the people who are poor or destitute, maybe, would be a word that the Bible used. That is, a, is not a good situation at all. Basically, where people are put in a situation where they're going to die for lack of need, or they're going to be put in a situation where they have to resort to uh, you know, un, uh, dehumanizing behavior. So, for example, it will say, provide for widows so that they don't resort to prostitution. This is one of the laws in the Hebrew Scriptures. So this category at the bottom, this this category is not a good category. That is not part of God's plan whatsoever. And and when people are destitute, it is the responsibility of those who have more to come and to care for those who are destitute. If you want to go to the next slide, Hillary. That's kind of what that's trying to show. That, That is always the movement that's supposed to be there. But here's also what's key for us today. It also works the other way. So the gleaning and the jubilee rules also exist so that people don't become ultra-rich or super-rich. That's a category that's also frowned upon in the Bible. Let me just give you one example. We'll go back to Deuteronomy uh, for this one. Since last time I did, you guys got, all got so excited and enjoyed it so much. So Deuteronomy is uh, uh, it's Moses. He's giving his uh, kind of final speech to God's people. And in there, he talks about... Uh, a person in Israel, like this is how God wants you to, to be as a nation. And he talks very specifically about one person who would be rich and influential, which is the same thing we see in this story that we're talking about, right? A rich ruler. And, and that person in ancient Israel was the king, the most influential person and the richest person. And here's what Moses says about him. He must not acquire many horses for himself. He must not acquire many wives for himself. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. Very interesting. Why? 
so that his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen, and he will not turn from this command to the right or to the left. Basically, he's saying too much riches, even for the king, will cause him not to love his neighbor. He'll think he's better than his countrymen, and it it will cause him not to love God. So it's not good, as it says in our passage, to be very rich according to the way God sees the world. It's not good for a follower of Jesus. It's not good for the human spirit, and it's definitely not good for the community of people. So, there's the last thing I want to say about ancient uh, Israel and their way of, of, of living. God seems to, if you read through the Hebrew scriptures, have what the Jesuits call a, a, um, sorry, a preferential option for the poor. A preferential option for the poor. And basically, you can think of it like this, that his heart lives here. God is always concerned about this group of people, and he is always calling his people to care for them. Nicholas Wolderstorff, who is a theologian, he, he calls this group of people in the bottom he, the quartet of the vulnerable, the foreigner, the poor, the widow, and the orphan, that God's heart is always leaning towards this group of people. And he calls those with more to care for them and the whole nation of Israel to do so. But the second thing, again, for us to notice, that is very important for us today, is that God also cares for the people above the line. He loves those people too, but his love comes across in a different way. It's warnings. There are consistent warnings to those who have more. And that's what is getting picked up in this passage today. I also realized as I made this, you, you can go, kind of go two ways. The smart way, if you're ever making uh, um, graphics like this, is to build the whole graphic and then to uh, copy it and delete pieces. Because then you get to see what the finished thing is at the end. But I did it the opposite way. I just slowly built it over time, and I realized it just looked more and more like a boomer dream, like a boomer like uh, you know dream of a, a PowerPoint. So I apologize for that. That's, uh, that's on me. Um, But I hope it gets the point across of what I'm trying to say. And it will be a a really important graphic for us to understand, okay? To give us context for what's happening in this passage. So, the rich young ruler, let's now move to his story. He comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to inherit eternal life? Now, very quickly, if you're paying attention, there's a problem with this question. Well, there's a couple different things. First, this is the same question as last week. Mitch preached on the passage. The Good Samaritan, the guy comes and says almost verbatim, exactly the same thing. What does Jesus do to that guy? He like puts him in the tilt-a-whirl, and he comes out at the other end being like, uh-oh. Same thing happens this week. So here's my advice. Don't ask this question to Jesus. It's a terrible one. He'll put you in the tilt-a-whirl, and it won't be good news for you. Um, the second thing is that the, you could just see the focus is all wrong. What's he focused on? Me. What's the story of Israel and money focused on? It's not focused on me. It's not focused on you, especially if you're a wealthy person. The second thing to notice is he's asking a paradoxical question. What do I do to inherit something? If you know anything about inheriting, you don't do anything to inherit stuff. You are something, and then you inherit. I am a son of my father, so I hope in faith there will be some inheritance for me, in small pittance that I'm going to get. But you gain an inheritance by being someone, not by doing anything. And so it's already off in two ways from the very beginning. And if the inheritance that, God, that Jesus wants to give is all the things that we already talked about in this passage, eternal life, salvation, being part of the kingdom of God, if that is the inheritance that you get, imagine what you'd have to do in order to get that. And that's where Jesus is going to go. You want to talk about what you need to do? Let's talk about what you need to do. So Jesus says, you know the commandments. 
Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. So the guy asks, how do I get the stuff? How do I get the stuff you have to offer? Jesus lists five of what we know as the Ten Commandments. You may have heard of the Ten Commandments. Now, ancient commentators break the Ten Commandments up like this. They call it the two tablets. Love God and love neighbor. The same thing Mitch talked about last week. These two sections of the law. The first three commandments are about loving God. So don't have other gods, don't make idols, don't misuse God's name. Jesus doesn't even mention these ones. The last six are about loving your neighbor. This is where Jesus quotes from. So, honor your father and mother, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give dishonest testimony. And the rich young rulers, or the rich rulers, like, yeah, 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 like, I've done all these things from my youth. Like, this is boilerplate good Jew stuff, okay? And if you've been in the church for any length of time, you've probably heard this stuff. You're like, oh, yeah, like, of course, I know that this is what you're supposed to do or not supposed to do. And this is what the guy says, yeah, I've been doing this stuff my whole life. But if you notice, if you're looking, there's two commandments that are missing. One of them is the 10th commandment, and listen to what this says. Jesus didn't mention this one. Do not covet your neighbor's wife or desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What is coveting? Not a word we use very often. It's desiring or craving or lusting. There's like a sexual tension to this word. It's, it's desiring, craving, or lusting after something that, that is not yours with the hopes that if you get it, it will fulfill you. It will make your life better. That's the, the general idea of what coveting is. And it's propelled by just one word for me. When I think of it, it's more. I want and I need more. That if I had more, I would be enough, I would have enough, I would have the good life. That's the vision of what it is. And um, John Rock, maybe a, a story will help. There's a guy named John Rockefeller. At the time uh, when he lived, he was one of the richest men in the world. He had 1% of all of the wealth in America at the time. 1% of all the wealth. Billions and billions of dollars. And a reporter famously asked him, you know, you have so much money. How much is, like, enough? You know what he said? Just a little bit more. That is, that is the attitude, that is the way of thinking. I just need a little bit more. Now, there's two things to notice, I want us to notice about coveting as we put it in the, the, the vision of what's happening in God's bigger picture. The first is the direction. The direction is all about going up. That I need, my arrow needs to go up, and that's how I gain access to the good life. All the stuff that Jesus is offering. That's my vision. If I just had a little bit more... If I could just take a little bit more, then I'd have enough. So the direction is wrong. And the second thing is this. Whose stuff do I covet, according to this passage? Where do those things come from? Where does the more come from that fulfills my dream? Well, the passage is really clear. It comes from my neighbor. I covet my neighbor's things. And so the arrow is actually like this. It's taking from those who have left in order for me to have more. So Jesus responds. This is all in the background. And so Jesus doesn't mention this uh, commandment specifically, but you can see it in his language. You still lack one thing. Sell all you have, distribute it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. That's what's going on behind the scenes of this interaction. Jesus is saying your lust for more is mobilized by your coveting. You have not loved your neighbor. And so that's why Jesus says the answer, the cure, is stop coveting. 
Give everything that you have away. And it's not just divesting yourself, it's giving it to the poor. Reverse your arrow in exactly the opposite way. Spend yourself in loving generosity towards your neighbor. Be like God. Cut out covenant at its root and then come and follow me. It's a riff on the 10th commandment. But you may notice uh, when I had it up here that there's another commandment that's missing. And um, theologians, like I said, there's two parts, love God, love neighbor, and all of them fit into one category or another in some way. But the fourth commandment is, they call it a link commandment. It's kind of in the middle. It's not really, it's kind of both. So what does the fourth commandment say? It's the longest one, so get ready. We're going to read it. Be careful to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Love God. Obey God. Do not do any work. You, which I'm sure the rich ruler would be like, of course I don't work on the Sabbath. Of course I don't do that. Don't do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your ox or donkey, any of your livestock or the resident alien who lives within your gates, so that your male and female slaves may rest as you do. See, it's not just about you, it's about loving your neighbor. It's, Sabbath isn't just about shutting my phone off and watching as much Netflix as I possibly can. It's actually a bigger vision for all of us of rest. And he continues, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And so here we see a return to all of these themes. Love God, love neighbor. And this restoring that was part of Israel's identity, coming back. This is who you are. You were slaves, but you've been free. You don't have to work. There's a rest on offer for you because I am the Lord your God. Go back to that. That's what the Sabbath is about. Restore yourself around the identity of who you were made to be. Now, why is this all important for for our story and, and the rich ruler's story? We need to remember, again, that we're looking at the Gospel of Luke through the lens of Jubilee. And Jubilee is basically a Sabbath announcement. That's what it is. And if you, again, if you read through the book of Luke, you'll see that Jesus gets in trouble again and again and again and again for healing people on Sabbath. He goes and he heals them, and, and the, the people are incensed. They're like, look, you're breaking the Sabbath law. And Jesus is like, you don't actually understand what the Sabbath is all about. That's why I'm healing on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath, as we talked about in the first sermon uh, of this series, it, it's part, the Sabbath day is only part of a bigger story. So there's the seventh day rest. But then there's the Sabbath year, every seventh year that you Sabbath. And then there's the super Sabbath, the Jubilee, every 49th year that happens. And what happens again on Jubilee? The oppressed are freed. Your land is restored. You're cleared of your debt. And that's what Jesus' ministry is all about. That when he's talking about Sabbath, it's not just a day. It's this whole story. It's this vision of people being freed, of them being restored. And Jesus is saying throughout the book of Luke, but also in this passage, you can Sabbath. You cannot work on that day. And you can still miss the bigger story, the bigger vision of all that I'm about. And Jesus comes announcing Jubilee, very specifically in the Gospel of Luke, because as far as we know, the, the actual jubilee, that 49th year rest, never actually happened. It never happened in the history of Israel. And whose fault is that? You think it's the poor? The people below the line? They're like, you know what? We've just had such a good time serving you and not having a home. Let's just keep it going. Let's not celebrate jubilee. Absolutely not. It's the rich. It's the rich rulers. 
What do we have in this passage? A rich ruler. Now, earlier I said that people can become poor because of bad choices, bad decision, or bad luck, and people can become rich because of good decisions, good choices, and good luck. And that's all true. I still agree with that. But this passage now is saying that there's another reason why people can become rich and people can become poor. It's injustice. It's oppression. That's what's happening behind this passage. He has not kept the law, and so he has been unjust. Listen to what an early church commentary says about this passage. When the, how can you say, I have performed the law and the prophets? That's what the rich ruler says. I've done all these things. This is what an early commentary says. How can you say I perform the law and prophets, seeing that it's written in the law, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself? And look, many of your brothers, sons of Abraham, are clad with dung, dying for hunger, and your house is full of much goods, and nothing goes out to those people. How can you say you have obeyed the law? And this is what's humming in the background for Jesus and this man. Sure, he hasn't murdered He hasn't lied. He hasn't stolen. He's probably kept the Sabbath. He doesn't work on the Sabbath. But his extreme wealth is evidence that he's broken the law, that he's missed the point of the story that Jesus has come for. He's held back justice from the poor. He has not Sabbathed. And so Jesus says to him these same words, you lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to your poor, to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Celebrate Jubilee with me. It's an invitation for this man. Come celebrate Jubilee. Truly Sabbath. Correct the injustice that you have done with justice and love your neighbor. And it says that he walks away sad because he has a lot of money. Now, this is the story that's happening in this passage. And it's just one dude's story from ancient Israel. Like, as far as I can tell, there's no ancient Israelites here with us this morning. I could be wrong. But I bet your story doesn't really match this, guys. Maybe in terms of wealth, definitely not in terms of time and situation. And so, um, this, in one way, the story is it's hard for us to bring into this moment. And I want to say one thing about that. I can say with assuredness that what, what this passage is not trying to teach us is that all of us need to dump out all of our TFSAs tomorrow and, like, become monks or something like that. Um, because later on, there's a story about Zacchaeus, a guy named Zacchaeus, which mirrors this story, and you can read it. Um, and Zacchaeus only gives away half of his money, and Jesus says you have received the kingdom of God. So it's not actually about giving every single thing away. That's not the point. But here's the bad news for us. Even though this is one person's story, Jesus broadens the message. Listen to what he says. How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And without warning, this story extends to every follower of Jesus of all time, including me, and each one of us. So everything in this passage becomes relevant to us, to this story. That when we find ourselves in a position where we're above the line, it's really easy to focus on me and my family and, and my problems rather than to mimic God's heart, which breaks for the poor. To skip out on loving our neighbor. It's really easy to pick and choose some of God's laws that will make me look like a good middle-class Christian and then do the bare minimum of loving God and loving my neighbor rather than what we see in the story of God and what we see in Jesus, which is just this radical pouring out of yourself for the poor and for those who don't have. It's so much easier for me to focus on my arrow going up more, 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 and more rather than to divest myself for those who are below the line. 
And it's so much easier for me to delay. Delay, put it off, put it off. Try to find the perfect charity to support or the perfect, perfect poor people who, you know, if I just gave them enough money, then they'll get graduate degrees and go on to great success stories or play in the NBA or whatever your dream is. Rather than just to obey. Just to obey. Rather than just to give ourselves. And here's the big takeaway for me when this story now extends to my life and to our church and to our lives. If we find ourselves above the line, if we are in the position of having more or being rich, it's really hard for Jubilee to be good news. It's really hard for Jubilee to be good news because it means, for us, sacrifice. It means humility, and it means getting a bigger story than just me and my family and my donkey and my ox and my home. It means having a much bigger story and a bigger dream, and that's why the rich ruler couldn't do it. But the good news is this. It is possible that's what Jesus says. It's, it's hard, but it's possible. And there's two examples. The first, like I said, is Zacchaeus' story. I encourage you to read that. And that might be a really great reflection for community groups to do. But the second is the disciples who are mentioned right in this passage. And here's what Peter says. Look to Jesus. Look. We have left what we had and followed you. We have left what we had and followed you. And so I just want to close by looking at how could we enter into this jubilee story, into this jubilee dream? What does it look like for those of us who live above the line? And here's what I think the disciples did. First of all, for years, they had heard about this jubilee story. This is just something that's just all the time spoken about. It's, it's the hope for them. It's the hope for their people. It was like a dream. It was a dream they were just waiting to, to become true in their lives. And so when they hear the jubilee announcement from Jesus, they're able to leave everything they have and follow him. And I think it's the same pattern for us. You know, our world encourages us to dream a very different kind of of dream. It's basically the dream that our arrows would just keep going up. It's the dream of more. And I don't need to try to, like, evidence that in any way, I don't think. Just watch any advertisement. Just walk outside and look at any billboard. It's basically saying, if you had this, then you would be happy, fulfilled, whatever. We all know that this is true. But this dream is unbelievably strong. Basically, we've been encouraged to dream this dream ever since we were very, very young. And it makes following Jesus with our money exactly what this passage says, exceedingly difficult and almost impossible. Because this dream is like an eclipse. It just shadows out everything. And so what we need to do is to learn to dream a new dream. And I hope that's part of what we do here today and what we do every day that we come here is, is to counterform ourselves around the story of Jesus. Not the stories that, that we come from with our families and from our culture, but to counterform ourselves around the story of Jesus and, and learn this dream where it's just a bigger dream of heaven and earth coming together. That's what Jesus has on offer, of restoration, of what it says up here, of all things becoming new. That's the dream that we're invited to dream. And I don't know about you, but for me, there's at least some resonance around that dream. As much as I want more, I'm not immune from this. I live in this same world as all of you. As much as that dream is strong for me and I want more, there's still resonance when I hear about this jubilee dream for Jesus, that there's something that I want there that calls out to me, that I want to be true. And I know that's true for many of you too. And when I see the scope and the fullness of this jubilee dream that God has on offer for us, 
it makes my dream look so small and stupid, to be honest. That if just think if like if I could just upgrade my bike a little bit, everything would be good. And Jesus is saying, like, I'm here to restore all things. And I'm like, yeah, but if I could just get a carbon fiber seed post, like, you know, drop two grams, it'd be awesome. It just makes it look like that. And that's part of what the Bible is designed to do, is just to say, your dreams are too small. And that's what God wants to say to everybody. Everybody in, in here, everybody outside. It's, it's not that you, you suck. It's not that he hates you. It's just that you're dreaming something way too small. That there's something so much bigger on offer for all of us. And that's what Jesus says. He invites us to dream this dream. And the hard part for us is leaving that dream. Is actually, tangibly, leaving the small dreams that we have for the big dream of Jesus. The, the small dreams of how we think a little bit more money will make us more secure. How getting a house will make us finally feel like, you know, we've made it here in Vancouver or whatever that is. It's, it's letting go of that and pushing your chips in with Jesus. That's the hard part. To dream his dream of the kingdom, the renewal of all things, which does have financial ramifications for us. But it is at the heart of following Jesus. And to me, it's, at, it's what's at the heart of life in general. You know, all of us are betting all the time. That's what we do. We have our one wild and crazy life, and we bet it on what we think is the best dream that's on tap. That's what the rich man is doing. He's saying, you know what, Jesus? I'm not going to push my chips in with you. Instead, I'm going to bet on myself. I'm going to bet on my dream, that money and status are better. And Peter is saying, you know what? We're pushing our chips in with you, Jesus. All our money is on you. And so you're going to bet. Every person in this world is going to bet. Every person in this room is going to bet. Every character that you meet in the Bible is betting. The question is just, what are you putting your money on? What, who are you betting on? But we have one piece of insider information that this rich young ruler didn't have that invites us to go in, all in with Jesus. We have the message and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which is just his way of saying, I'm actually betting it all on you. I'm taking everything that I have and I'm putting it on you. I believe in you. That I believe that you can be more than just a selfish person, but that you can be unbelievably generous. You can be so generous that you actually look like God. I believe that this dream is too small for you, and so I've got just a bigger one on tap, and so I'm just going to throw it all in. I'm going to throw it all in in order that maybe some of you would dream this bigger dream with me. Bigger dream than just a middle-class kingdom, or a middle-class personal kingdom and rather come to dream with me about Jubilee. I believe that you're more than just a consumer. There's more to you than simply that, but that you can actually be a child of God. And I believe that this world is not just going to hell in a handbasket or something that we should just cast aside, but I actually believe that it could be a place of hope and beauty and truth where heaven and earth actually meet together. And Jesus just says, I'm all in. That's what this whole story is about. That he says, I stake my life on you. I give it over to you that this might happen, that through the power of my Holy Spirit, we can actually become those kinds of people who not only dream the dream, but that the dream flows out of. And that's the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the hope, the small down payment, the glimmer, that this crazy jubilee dream might actually be true. That somehow, in some way, there's a portal to another world, to another way of being in the world, to the way of being new humans, part of a new creation. That jubilee might actually be true. And all Jesus asks in return is that we 
go in with him. That we, as the Bible says, believe in him. That we put our chips in with him. That we believe that this jubilee dream might actually be true. That, that we can be more as people. That there's a bigger vision of what it means to be human and a community of people than just consumers. And that we are invited to take up the story of Jesus in the path of dying and rising. For those of us who are above the line, that we do what Jesus did, although he is very ultra-rich, did not consider that something to hang on to, but divested himself in order that we might come to be part of his family. And that's the path we're invited to take as well, to die and to rise, and then come and follow Jesus. What will you do? What are our lives going to be bet on? Where are we going to push in our chips? Let's pray to close. God, we thank you for this story and for this passage, as challenging as it is to me personally and I'm sure to many of us. But we thank you for your invitation and your belief in us, even your belief in this man um, who says no to you. In other passages, it says you looked on him with love. And uh, there's this love that you have for all of us that comes across in a sense of for what some of us will be a warning. And so we pray that you would, we would heed your warning today and that we would respond in faith, in hope, in love. And so as we move into this time of response, as we sing together, as we give, as we take communion, we invite you to be with us, to minister to us, and to teach us what it means in our individual lives to accept that path of dying and rising and going all in with you. We pray these things together in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.